right, so today we're, uh, we're continuing on with our series, and here I'm going to be upfront with you, is this is the last series of questions on Christmas, and I'm going to try to go short tonight. I know, I'm excited about that, so are you. We'll go next door, we'll have popcorn and some goodies, and it'll be a great night. Okay, so if you haven't been here the last few weeks, we've been going through a bunch of questions about Christmas is uh, we started with kind of the biggest question, which is what's the purpose of Christmas? Why do we have it? And then we've kind of been refining it from there. So what is God ultimately trying to tell us through Christmas? And we talked about that last week. And today, um, I want to come into a handful of questions that are a little bit more detailed and hopefully finish with, uh, with, with one final question. So the first question, and if you were like me, this actually might be your first question. The first question that I have when I read the Christmas story, and again, I, I, bo- I was born into a Christian family. I'm a pastor's kid. I've been to church service every weekend of my entire life. I have been to more church than you can imagine. And the first question that I have when I read the Christmas story is, is this true? Like, is this true? Because it really, to me, seems like if nothing else, if this isn't true, then nothing else matters about the story. So is it true? Is it like a myth? Is it a legend? Or is it actual history? And, uh, and this is really an interesting subject because as we get into Christmas, um, there is a lot of myth and there's a lot of history and it all kind of seems to be mixed in. And so you know this because growing up, you were probably told um, maybe one of two things. You were told about Christmas and it has to do with Jesus and it has to do with Santa Claus, right? Jesus and Santa Claus. And then when you get to a certain age, you're supposed to believe, okay, well, the Jesus part is real, the Santa Claus part is not. Now, this is a debate, if you, if you know me or Amy very well, this is a debate that um, almost ruined our marriage, is do we tell our kids about Santa Claus or not, okay? And from the very early stages of us dating, I don't know how this came up, but we started to talk about Santa Claus, and she was like, oh, for sure I'm telling my kids about Santa Claus. And I was like, no, you're not if you're marrying me, because Santa ain't real, and my kids will know that from day one. In fact, they will ruin it for all the other kids, and I will be so pleased with that. (laughs) And so from the very, I know, I know, but just listen, okay, just listen. And so over the years, like we dated for uh, like almost three years and we were married for almost five before we had kids. And so we had a long time to discuss that and I eventually um, convinced her that it was uh, torture to tell your kids about Santa Claus. And so I, uh, I remember about... I don't know, three, two, two years ago when Sienna was just about old enough to understand Santa Claus and everything that you watch on the Disney Channel and all the movies always talk about Santa Claus. And so she brought it up to me and she says, Dad, um, when is Santa Claus coming? And I went, sit down, here we go. <laughs> sit down, Sienna, sit down, here we go. And I said, listen, here's the deal with Santa Claus. He's fake, okay? He's not real. Yeah, I know, it's crazy, isn't it? And she goes, Okay. <laughs> She's like, who brings me presents? I'm like, mommy and daddy pay for those presents. Don't you dare give credit to fictional Santa Claus, okay? He's not real. Do not give him the credit for the presents that I have bought you with my hard-earned money. And so the other day, this is so funny. The other day at um, December night, something we do here on Thursday night, she comes up and they're, they're doing pictures with Santa and everything. And she walks out and she goes, that's not the real Santa. I remember Santa from last year, and that's a different Santa Claus. And I said, Sienna, what's, what do you know about Santa Claus? She goes, he's not real. And I said, that's right. Go tell those other kids in line right now. <laughs> no, nah, but seriously. Um, anyway, 
See, I'm not even going to get into it. I can already tell some of you guys are like so pissed right now. I don't even, it's fine. I'll pray for you. Um, anyway, I think that uh, for so many of us, um, we, put, we put Jesus and the whole birth of Jesus in sort of the same category as Santa Claus. It's really nice. It's a great tradition. It's something that gives us the warm fuzzies at Christmas time. But like as we read the Christmas story, it seems to have the same kind of elements that Santa does. Is think about it. We're talking about the supernatural or the miraculous in both stories. Santa Claus, he goes around the world. He can deliver all these presents. We're like, how can he do that? Um, how can he know? He watches kids while they sleep. Super creepy. Uh, is, that, is, that, is that how he does? Watches kids when they're sleeping? I don't know. That seems, that seems a little bit pervy to me, but that's fine. Um, but think about it. On, in the Christmas story, we have angels that are showing up to shepherds. We have wise men that are following some kind of star. We have a virgin birth. You ever heard of that before? Try that as an excuse. Mom, dad, I don't know how this happened. I think I'm like the Virgin Mary, right? That's probably not going to go over very well is there's all these elements that just seem absolutely unbelievable in the Christmas story. And so when we get rid of Santa Claus as we grow up, we sort of get rid of Jesus. Now, we might pretend like we believe, or we may just not even try to think about it very much, but it comes and goes, and we just put him in the same category. But here's the, here's the question that I want to ask, is does Jesus fit into the myth or the history category? Is he more like Santa Claus, or is he more like history, the figures of history that we know, like George Washington, we know he existed. And so which of those two categories does Jesus fit into? And the first question we have to ask is, well, what is the Bible? Is the Bible some document that can be relied upon? And as we look at the Bible, by the way, if you're not a Bible person, um, the Bible is not one book, but it's a library of books. And these books were not written, uh, at least most of them were not written together, but they were compiled together later on. And so there are different accounts, especially the Gospels, of Jesus' life and ministry. So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's where we find out about Jesus. And only two of those do we find the, uh, the birth narrative. That's in Matthew and in Luke. And so in these, we have to decide, are these documents that are going to be reliable, and here's the interesting thing is these documents, almost all the documents, in fact, of the New Testament were written roughly within 50 years of the death of Jesus. Some go all the way back to the day of. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 15 that we believe goes back to within five years of Jesus' death and resurrection. And so these are as close as we can get to eyewitness accounts. This is like YouTube back in the first century, okay, is we have video um, written on these pages of what's happening. And we have uh, not just, so what's interesting, and I don't want to get too de detailed into this, but there's this, um, there's this study in which we can find out the accuracy of the Bible. Like, what did the original manuscript say versus what do we have in our Bibles here that we can open up right now? And if you read like Time Magazine or Newsweek or any of these, every Christmas and Easter, there will be some scholar who will come out and say, oh, it's not reliable. Oh, we don't know these certain things. We don't. And for many of us, we got to, oh man, I, what, what's the truth here? So let me kind of boil this down to, for you for some people who, uh, who are not familiar with this area of study. Is the Bible can be um, proven to be 99.5% accurate to what the original authors wrote. And there's a whole, you can read about how they do this, but this is not just from a Chris, Christian perspective. This is from an atheist, uh, from a pantheist perspective, from a secular uh, theologian perspective, is 
they believe the Bible is 99.5% accurate to what the authors wrote. So the next question we have to ask is, well, what exactly were the authors trying to do? Were they trying to write history or were they writing some kind of legendary story? And so when we look into Luke, which is one of the places we're going to read the, uh, the, the, uh, Christian, or the uh, birth of Jesus, we find out some things about Luke. Um, Luke is thought to be a doctor, and he wasn't Jewish. And so he wasn't out there like looking for a Messiah, and he's out there going, okay, I need to figure out if this Messiah is coming or not. In fact, um, there had been tons of Messiahs that had come and gone. It wasn't that odd in the first century for someone to pop up and go, I'm the Messiah, I'm here to save Israel, and then they would go, um, nope, and then they would kill him, and then all his disciples would walk away and go home. But for some reason, Luke thought that this was the Messiah, even though he wasn't Jewish, and he believed that Jesus was born of a virgin, and all the things that happened in Jesus' life, he goes around and he interviews people. So at the very beginning, um, we see that Luke is convinced that all the things that talks about in his gospel account of Jesus' life, that these are actual historical events that have taken place. In fact, he starts off with um, those very words. He says, I'm trying to write an orderly account. So here's what, here's what it looks like. In Luke 1, uh, 1 if you want to uh, open up your Bibles, you can jump in there with me. It says this, Luke 1, 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. So this is before the church, this is before any of the New Testament is, is written or at least compiled. Um, this is before a worldwide movement of Christianity has started. And Luke says something crazy has happened. Something crazy has happened and it happened through this person of Jesus. And all these other folks are trying to figure out what exactly happened. And the other folks would probably be people like Matthew and Mark and John. And they're all trying to figure out what took place in Jesus' life. And so what he does here is he begins to write a book. In verse two, he says, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So he says, listen, I'm going around and I'm interviewing people, eyewitnesses that saw Jesus' life and ministry. And so the stories that I'm about to tell you, including the Christmas story, are all from people who were there. I did not hear from third party. It's not hearsay. It's not a rumor. I have thoroughly investigated it. I've talked to people like Peter and Paul and James, the brother of Jesus, and possibly even Mary herself to find out what really happened. Verse three says, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated, I've looked at these accounts, everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you. Most excellent Theophilus. This is a person whom he's writing to. This is a letter to him. So that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. And so there's someone named Theophilus. We don't know much about him. And Luke is writing him the stories of Jesus that he has interviewed from people. And he says, listen, you're a Christian, and maybe he's having some doubts. Maybe he wants to know more about Jesus. And he says, here is the story of Jesus. And this is how he begins his whole gospel. As he says, what I'm about to tell you is not legend, it's not myth, but it is history. And this he kind of puts before we even get into uh, the Christmas narrative. Okay, so if we jump to the next chapter, so this is Luke chapter one, we go into Luke chapter two, we jump into the Christmas story. So we read the Christmas story the last couple of weeks, um, and if you don't know the Christmas story, I won't read through the whole thing right now, but I encourage you to read through it. What happens is, 
Um, we know the, the traditional Christmas story in which uh, Mary and Joseph have to go and they have to go to register for a census and there's no room for them in the inn and so they go into what is like maybe some kind of barn or maybe it's a cave or we're gonna talk a little bit about that and Jesus is born and then we have the wise men that come within a couple years and then we have the shepherds and then we, okay, so let me pause for a second. When I read this story, the first question that I have is, uh, do I have to believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? Like, look, I live in a scientific age. I live in Western society. I know how this works. In fact, I have two kids myself. I know how this works really well. I'm pretty good at it, I gotta be honest. Um, what? I have kids. <laughs> yeah, you guys just squirm a little bit like junior hires. Like, ew, I think he's talking about sex. I'm not sure though. Um, <laughs> okay, so why was, he, why was Jesus born of a virgin? Well, the first answer, and you, if you've been around church for very long, you know this, in Isaiah 7, 14, it says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So first and foremost, he's born of a virgin because he's going to fulfill prophecy. Now, this is pretty unique. If you want to be the Messiah, one of the qualifications that you have to have is going to be very difficult to fulfill. You have to be born of a virgin. So right off the bat, if he is born of a virgin, we know that he has fulfilled one of the major prophecies uh, that have been foretold hundreds of years before he was born. But there's something else that's happening here. Is Jesus is born of a virgin woman, but it's it's the result also of the Holy Spirit. So there's like this immaterial and material thing happening with Jesus' conception. Is on one hand, this makes him fully God because he, is, uh, he has come about through the work of the Holy Spirit. And yet it also makes him fully man because he's born of a woman. And see, this is crucial for understanding who Jesus is, because as Christians, we want to say that um, Jesus was totally physical, that he had a body like you and I, he had thoughts, uh, he had feelings, he had pains, he had pleasures, just like we do as people, and yet there was something radically different about him, that he had God's nature, that he was eternal and he was sinless in his nature, and so the reason why the virgin birth is, is important is because he has to have both. He has to be fully God and fully man. And to uh, be born of Mary, and yet uh, the reason is because of the Holy Spirit gives him that ability. Second question I have is, um, why, and actually what's interesting is if you were there this morning, uh, Nabil talked about this, is why, why, the, why the shepherds? Like, you ever, like, take apart the story and go, there are so many random things that are happening in this story. There are so many random things. Okay, we got the virgin birth, and then we got angels appearing to shepherds. Where the frick did they come from? And then we got these like wise men, and there are just so many random things, which is yet another pointer for me why this is history and this isn't legend. Because nobody would make this up. It's just random elements. But there's also a pattern here. And we talked about that last week, is one of the patterns is, is the reason why Jesus came to the earth was to save people. But here's one of the central parts of the message, is it's not just a specific group of people, but it's all people. He didn't just come for the rich and the famous, he came for the down and the out. And so who is the first people that get to be a part of the Christmas story? These humble nobodies who are out in a field watching livestock. 
See, this is important because what this says is that God is demonstrating his love, not just for a specific group of people, but for everyone. And he does this by, by, uh, by addressing the down and the out. And in fact, this is what the rest of his ministry looks like, is he goes and he ministers to the people who are outcasts, the people who are disease-ridden, the people who, they have no other hope, and yet those are the very people that he goes to. Okay, let me, ask, let me do a couple more questions. Uh, was Jesus born on December 25th? No, yes, maybe so. No, you're not too sure about that. You think it's a trick question, don't you? So check this out. This is kind of interesting. This is a fun fact for you to tell at dinner. Is Jesus probably was not born on December 25th. Some of you guys are super upset right now, but he was probably not born on December 25th. Um, what's interesting about this is, is people have debated it, and actually this belief goes all the way back to the third century where people believe that Jesus was born on December 25th, but the better explanation is probably the reason why Christians celebrate during this season is because there was pagan holidays that took place during this season. And so a lot of people who were pagans have become Christians, and so Christians then repurposed all of their holidays into Christian holidays. This is even true of a lot of the, uh, the, a lot of the symbols of, uh, and traditions of Christmas, is instead of totally flipping their calendar upside down, Christians just went, you know what? It doesn't matter what the, the symbol is, it matters what the significance is. And so they took the dates of these pagan holidays and they took the symbols of these pagan holidays and they repurposed many of them. So for example, um, Christmas bells. Christmas bells were actually a pagan celebration where they would ring bells to drive out evil spirits. And then Christians came along and said, well, you know what? In Psalm 95.1, it says, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord as make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. They say, we're going to take your symbol and we're going to repurpose it and make it something that glorifies God. Same is true of, of lighting candles and even of gift giving. During these pagan holidays, they would give gifts, sometimes in a very different way than we do, but Christians went along and went, whoa, 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 whoa. If anyone should be giving gifts during this Christmas season, it's us. Because the whole purpose of the celebration is that God has given us the greatest gift that we could ever imagine, his son into the world. And so if, if anyone's gonna give gifts, it's gotta be us. So as a, as a reflection of what a good gift giver God is, we're going to be giving gifts to one another to kind of celebrate the fact that we have been given an incredible gift. Okay, here's my other, I got two more questions. Was Jesus actually born in a, st in a stable? Now, this is an interesting question because it might or might not be true that he was born in a stable. It might have been a barn, it might have been like a cave, it might have been a stable, but it had to do with something where, in fact, this is new to me, is it may have even been the first floor of a house in which animals would be kept during the night. So wherever he was born, he was definitely born where there were animals, and it probably wasn't all that pretty or clean. And if you think about it, he was born homeless. That's kind of crazy to me, is the savior of the world was born homeless. And so let me back up a moment here. Let me talk about home because um, I, I spoke at another thing today in which I talked about being home for the holidays and it really got me thinking because home seems to be central to the, the Christmas season. For some reason, we are all about being home for the holidays. And that's not just like a, that's not a Christian thing. That's like a, a, a societal thing. We have this universal desire for us to be home for the holidays, if you look at our favorite uh, classic Christmas songs, things like I'll Be Home for Christmas or Please uh, Come Home for Christmas, uh, 
they're all about getting the family together and being together for Christmas. I mean, our music is the same, or our movies are the same as um, if you grew up in a certain era like me, Home Alone was the movie for Christmas. I watched Home Alone and still watch it every single year. I can debate whether Home Alone 1 or 2 is better. That's fine. I'm okay with either one. If you say Elf, I'll punch you in the nose, though, because that's not greater than Home Alone. But there's something about being home for the holidays. If you think about what home is, home is uh, supposed to be, although it's not for many of us, it's supposed to be a place where we feel loved and we feel supported and we feel at peace, we feel understood, we feel safe. And that's what we've kind of romanticized in our movies and in our songs is that is the place in which we can experience those things. If we can just get home during this holiday season, we will be safe, we will be understood, we'll finally be at peace, we'll be loved by those around us. But here's the thing, it doesn't matter how loving your family is, it doesn't matter if you have the best family in the world, you never fully experience that. You've never fully experienced this total and complete love and peace and fulfillment and satisfaction. It's never happened. See, Christmas, I think, reveals a couple things to us. The first one is it, it reveals this, this desire that we have to be home where our deepest needs can finally be met. But then it also reveals something else. It reveals that no matter how great our home may be, we cannot ever have those needs met. And so there's this tension at Christmas where we want to be home, we want to find this thing that we're looking for, this peace, and yet it's never going to fully be there. If you imagine for a moment with me that um, we had the ability, I'm really into um, space right now, which sounds really nerdy, but you know, I've told you for the last few weeks I'm watching the show called The 100, and um, they came from outer space, okay, anyway, uh, and so I'm really into outer space right now. So let's imagine that all of us were on uh, a spaceship, okay, and we got to go to the planet Mars, and so we land on the planet Mars, and then we're like, whoo, here we are, let's go check this out, and so we open up the door, and we walk out there, and we go, <gasps> what would happen to us? We would die, right? We would die. I looked this up, actually. We would have three minutes maximum to live uh, with the oxygen levels on Mars, but the bad news is we would probably die faster than that because the climate um, would kill us first. So good news, bad news thing there. Um, <laughs> and the reason why, so, so if we went there, we'd go, we'd take a deep breath, we would realize very quickly that Mars is not our home right? It cannot support us. It cannot sustain us. We desire certain things that it cannot fulfill. We desire physically, we want air. That's kind of a big one. We also desire things relationally, where if we were on Mars, it would probably get pretty lonely pretty quickly. In fact, we would experience solitude and isolation, and that is one of the worst forms of punishment because we are made to be in relationships with other people. And so there is nothing about Mars that say, says that this is our home, and I think we would all recognize this. But let's imagine that we get back on our spaceship, and we come back to Earth, and we have survived, and we step out, and we just take a deep breath, and we go, ah. all of us would say, we're home, we're back. But hold on, are we really home in that moment? Because the thing that told us that Mars is not our home, because it cannot sustain us, it cannot fulfill us, it cannot uh, give us our desires that we have, the same is actually true here on Earth. We're still dying. We're just dying a little bit slower than we would on Mars. 
We still don't have the fulfillment of the things that we truly want here on earth. And so Mars and earth are really kind of the same. One's just a little bit faster processed than the other. And so if we don't consider Mars our home, why would we consider this our home as well? See, the truth is, is that if the place here on earth cannot support us, then this cannot ultimately be our home. This cannot be the place for us. And see, most of us, we try to ignore this fact. We try to keep ourselves busy so that we don't have to think about death and we don't have to think about um, all of our desires that have gone unmet. We try to keep ourselves distracted by our careers and by our relationships and by accomplishing certain things. And so we never think about this, this fact that this place is actually killing us slowly. It's depressing. No one wants to think about that. In fact, we try to totally normalize it. We try to say, you know, it's just a part of life. They told us this from an early age. You watch Disney movies, it's a circle of life. You gotta die so others can live. It's just, you know, this is how it works. And yet there is nothing normal about that. Just like there's nothing normal about you landing on Mars and calling that home, there's nothing normal about us being here on Earth and having all of these needs go unmet. It's just that we don't wanna actually think about it. See, the conclusion has to be that if this cannot sustain our most basic needs, then we have to have been built for someplace else. Scripture explains this really well. Scripture says that um, we were not made to inhabit the earth in the current state that we're in. That we were made to be in the garden. And this is a place in which we have an intimate relationship with God where our deepest desires of our hearts are satisfied. That we finally feel physically and emotionally and relationally satisfied that we are at total peace with our surroundings, with one another, with ourselves, and because we have a relationship with God. But also, the scripture tells us that because of our rebellion, we have lost that home. That we, as the human race, are, are in exile. That we have been cast out of the place in which we can truly be ourselves and we can truly find what we're looking for, and all of us are living in another world. A world, this earthly home that does not completely satisfy. So the question we have to ask is, how do we get our home back? How do we get this true home back that we so long for? Well, I think there's, a, there's an analogy here that kind of parallels this, is let's think about our, our homes here, like our actual physical homes. How is it that people usually lose their homes? Usually people lose their homes is because um, they have failed to uh, live up to an agreement that they have made. So this is usually in the form of a payment, either rent or mortgage payment, is we agree that we are going to make certain payments, we're going to live up to certain expectations, and that we're supposed to fulfill our end of the bargain. And if we don't, we usually get kicked out of our house. This is actually the same thing that the scripture tells us how we lost our true home is because there was an agreement between us and God. We were to worship God, we were to follow him, we were to obey him, and yet we did not live up to our end of the bargain. We did not live up to that agreement. We said, no, 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 I wanna be my own God. I wanna do my own thing. I don't wanna follow you. And so what happened when we didn't live up to our end of the bargain? God kicked us out of our true home. Now, if we follow this analogy and this parallel, I think we have to ask, um, how can we get our home back then? So the way that we get our home here back is we have to pay back the debt that is owed. We've accumulated some sort of debt because we haven't paid our rent or we haven't paid the mortgage, and so we have now have to pay that back if we wish to stay in our home. The same is actually true of our, our true home. 
is there is a debt that has, uh, that has to be paid, and here is the problem. The debt that we have now incurred um, is so great, is, is so huge that we, as individuals and as a collective human race, we can't pay this debt back. It's the, the, the rebellion against God cannot be made up by us just being sweethearts. There's something bigger that has to happen. We don't have a big enough moral bank account to be able to pay for this. And so here's what the scripture says. It says the only way that you can get your true home back is either if you pay it, which you can't, or someone with enough resources comes along and pays it for you. And you know who that person is? God himself is the only person who can do that. And that's what Christmas is all about. God is sending us his son into the world in order to pay the debt that you and I owe so that one day we can be back into our true home where we long for, where we know we belong. See, the crazy part about Christmas is Jesus leaves his father's house, the place where he is totally satisfied, totally fulfilled, where he's in this perfect community of love, and he steps out of this place in which he's totally at home into a world that is broken, that is messed up, and it's a weak child who is homeless. He does this, he becomes a homeless child so that we who are cosmically homeless can live in our father's house once again. And here's the reality, is eventually you come to a point in which you can no longer get your home back, right? You get, you get evicted, in which the opportunity for you to get back into your home is no longer available, you've lost it. This is also true of our spiritual life, by the way is it tells us that right now we have the ability to be able to um, be reconciled with God and he is offering to pay off our debt so that we may live in our true home once again. And yet there will come a time in which time is up and we don't get that opportunity anymore. We have been evicted from God's presence and that we don't get to, uh, we don't get to be in our true home again. This is called hell. And so right now all of us have an offer in front of us. Jesus says, I'm willing to Pay off your debt, but time is running out. And so here's what I think Christmas is. I think Christmas is a reminder and it's a resolution. I think it's a reminder that the sense of alienation that we experience throughout the year, that we continue to feel as this nagging feeling in our life, the reason why we're not fulfilled, the reason why we don't uh, feel totally satisfied, it's a reminder that this place is not our home. It cannot sustain our deepest needs. And yet Christmas is also a resolution that the reason why we were exiled from our true home has been taken care of. That Christmas, that Jesus' birth is the resolution to our spiritual homelessness. That God has sent his son who is perfectly at home in heaven to be homeless on our behalf so that we who are homeless could once again be in our Father's house. So this Christmas, as we think about being with our family and being with our friends and all the great memories that we're going to make, remember that it's not totally going to fulfill you. The thing that you're longing for is on offer here at Christmas. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we... Uh, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for the Christmas season. That within us, there is this, this desire to be at home, to be wanted, to be loved, to be fulfilled, to be satisfied, to be around people 
who totally accept us and understand us, and we are at peace with ourselves and with the world, and yet we can never fully get to that place. We're always just a little bit short, no matter how great it is. And it's just a reminder that this is not truly our home, that we cannot be fully sustained here, that you made us for someplace else. And so, Lord God, Christmas is that, that time in which we are both reminded and we celebrate the fact that our true home awaits us, that you have made us to be in your presence, and Christmas is the way that you provided that. So, Lord God, we thank you and we love you. In your name we pray, amen.